So TB, it's been uh, with us from the beginning of time. So you can probably trace the history of humans from <laughs> beginning of times, following just tuberculosis alone. Uh, it was quite amazing because in 1800s, um, England, the developed world, expected not to have much TB, and really a third of patients were dying from tuberculosis. And I think Dr. Katzman, when she was a fellow, helped me to find this uh, picture, which really depicts, it was uh, published, as you can see here, the highest in the civilized world uh, numbers of TB and uh, the consumption leading really the wolves, which are all the causes of why tuberculosis was so hard to treat. So as you can see here, I don't know how much you can read, but one of those things is adulterated food, which means no refrigeration. You can get tuberculosis from unpasteurized milk. You can see a slum tenements on the right, one of the walls. What are slum tenements? People living in close uh, corners without good ventilation. This is how tuberculosis is most likely spread. Uh, tuberculous milk, uh, so again, a lack of refrigeration, in sanitary workshops, working conditions, so really everything, and swelter, heat. So everything what the industrialized world was struggling with, with the industrial revolution, really contributed to tuberculosis uh, in the civilized world. And this was published in 1907 in the Leprechaun. That was actually a name of a <laughs> British uh, 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 journal. And uh, until then, a, a little tidbit. So until 1882, where tuberculosis was discovered by Koch, March 24th. Did you guys know it's tuberculosis day coming up? Not to celebrate TV, but <laughs> to use it as an opportunity for education and testing. We're actually going to have a big outreach on March 25th, the day after the tuberculosis day, uh, during our, uh, uh, we have a big event, right, for our uh, gay population, our Pride Week. So we are going to be there present, not just for HIV, but also for tuberculosis. Tuberculosis being the number one killer of HIV positive patients. That's why the connection between TB and HIV. But really, until 1882, tuberculosis was thought of as genetic disease. Until Koch discovered that it's a bacteria, mycobacteria. Why? Because it was passed on, right, from parents to kids and people who were families and lived together had tuberculosis, right? So it was thought to be a genetic disease. When Koch in 1882, said this is a mycobacteria, there was a complete switch, right, in thought that it's not. And now, in the recent years, we're coming back a full circle because it is also a genetic disease. So it's not only infectious and genetic. So what do I mean by that? And that's another lecture we can do at Tuberculosis 102.0 after this, is that you, in certain uh, geographic locations around the world, uh, who lived with tuberculosis longer. So where did tuberculosis originate? Which part of the world? Right? Probably Europe, the oldest, the old world, if you will. And it brought tuberculosis to the new world, right? To the Americas, to Asia, to India. So people who lived with tuberculosis genetically longer have a specific gene when they inhale tuberculosis, they have this squirt of TNF-alpha, which kills tuberculosis 
instantly. They are still infected. They're still going to have a positive PPD, positive quintiferone, but they will not come down easily with active disease, if you will. People who do not have this gene and don't have this genetic advantage, who are introduced to tuberculosis later on in evolution, I'll pick on people from India, right? They don't have the gene. You can breathe on them and they will come down with full-blown TB. So it is both infectious and it has a genetic uh, predisposition. So that's why family history, just like in diabetes and coronary artery disease, is so important when you talk uh, about, when you get the history from about tuberculosis. So it's both infectious and genetic uh, disease. And there is, I have a whole lecture of what is the pathways, what are the genes, and how is it uh, being studied right now. So how are we doing with TB? We're doing pretty well until COVID, <laughs> right? So what happened during COVID? It's multifactorial. So people probably spend more time indoors. By the way, how long, and many of you who have rotated with me know all of this, but as a review uh, for your boards, how long do you need to be in contact with somebody to get tuberculosis? How many hours? Six. Days, any other guesses? I'm not grading you. We're not being recorded. <laughs> two days, two hours. So on average, about eight hours. I mean, it, and it's a bell curve distribution. So it means you can be coughed on once and get tuberculosis, and you can live with somebody and not get it. But my, these are the extremes, right? But on average, it's about two, about eight hours. And it's not consecutive, it's cumulative meaning it doesn't have to be eight hours in a row. So if you're carpooling with somebody half an hour a day for 16 days, here's your eight hours. Can you think of instances you're going to be stuck with people for eight hours that you don't know who could be sick and make you sick? Flights, international flights, right? A jail, yes. I have cases of middle <laughs> I had you, you laughed. I had cases of middle upper class, like Caucasian, you know, upper class businessmen who got booked overnight for DUI, right? And here they are, you know, with tuberculosis. So this is not the disease of the poor and the underprivileged. Tuberculosis is such an equal opportunist. I love the disease. It does not care. You know, this is the only opportunistic infection which does not care about your CD4 count. This is the only opportunistic infections you are going to get regardless of your CD4 count. Most of them, you have to be less than 200. Doesn't matter what your CD4 count TB will get you. So it's a very just disease. <laughs> so as you can see, our numbers are going up. Uh, probably people didn't seek care. We were locked down for COVID. Many people spent time indoors. So I am expecting to see even a higher jump in the years to come. And as you can see, why does the data lags two years? Is it because I was too lazy to update the slides or why are they from 2021? It's the latest data we have. Because that's the latest data we have. Why? Because treatment for tuberculosis is right four, six, nine, mm -hmm. 12 months. So cases, you know, they don't start in January and finish within the same year by December. So cases are getting carried over, you know, from December of last year to middle of this year. So that's why the data lags about two years, because the cases don't get closed until, you know, two years. Uh, 
two years back. So that's why you will always see this lag. And this is actually the 2021 is the newest data that just came out, believe it or not. So what contributes to the TB morbidity? So lack of access to healthcare. The good thing about TB, and that's why I started doing it, I'm still doing it all these years, is for many patients, uh, this is the best thing which can happen to them. Just like HIV, it gives you a complete access to care. So once you have tuberculosis, you have access to everything. We even pay for your housing. We can put you up in a hotel. We can pay your electric bills, utility bills. We transport you to your primary care. If you have difficulty uh, with the treatment, and you would think why somebody would not want to take TB therapy besides just being obnoxious and rebellious. Uh, many people have problems with mental illness and substance abuse. If they could quit, they would just because they got tuberculosis does miraculously make them capable of quitting their alcohol or cocaine use. So those patients uh, get to be hospitalized up to a year with access to all the resources, meaning detox, uh, primary care, I mean, everything, they truly come out after a year, it makes a difference. They come out, new people, yes, some of them go back to their old uh, ways, but there is a good percentage of people that tuberculosis truly turns their life around because this gives you the access to care. And treatment of tuberculosis is absolutely free for everyone. So that's an important, you know, even with HIV, you have to struggle with ADAP and insurances you have to get on some kind of a plan. HIV, you walk through the door, everything is absolutely free. If you are well insured and everything, yes, we have a sliding scale, but majority of our patients that we take care of do not do not have any resources. So we help them pretty much with everything. So lack of infrastructure, lack of access to care. What else? Sorry? Immunosuppression, right? So we already talked about HIV, right? HIV epidemic definitely brought, this is the point of today's lecture. Uh, Another point that you probably saw in some of my uh, clinic lectures, immigration from high prevalence countries. So up to about 2000, 2001, majority of our cases were homegrown from US. Since about 2001, majority of our cases come from foreign born individuals. So it looks like we made a good dent home but still a lot of work to do for patients coming in from abroad. Okay, uh, we already mentioned uh, transmission in congregate settings. So besides jails, aeroplanes, military bases, dorms, right? Universities, colleges, think of places where people may be together for hours uh, spreading TB. My favorite, I'm being sarcastic, uh, uh, <laughs> Contact investigation is always at USF. When you have a one student with active TB, latest one we had was uh, from uh, foreign born with MDR TB, who knew he had MDR TB, ran out of meds, but was afraid to admit it to anyone because he was worried that his studies are going to be compromised and he's going to be deported back. Uh, so he was gladly symptomatic sitting every hour with different set of 100 students for a whole semester. Did anyone get it? Yes, oh, <laughs> of course. Can you imagine that contact investigation? 
And we'll talk about treatment, but, you know, LTBI treatment guidelines don't really have anything recommended for LTBI for MDR. So we are kind of off the grid using something that I tell you don't ever use in hospital. Don't ever use more than two weeks and, you know, because you're going to have side effects. What is it? Fluoroquinolones. Here I am giving somebody fluoroquinolone for profit for a year. Imagine watch, watching those side effects, right? I mean, it's absolutely mind mind-boggling. I thought they test college students when they're coming in from anywhere uh, for TB. Yeah, but when he was tested, he was on meds. Uh, so he didn't have anything. And when he ran out of meds, yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely correct. We test everybody coming in as legally to this country. Right. They go through a refugee clinic across the street. The reason the refugee clinic is so close to TB clinic, because guess what? Half of the patients, right? With positive quantiferols come to our clinic for chest x-ray to make sure we rule out active disease and decide what is the risk to treat them for LTBI. Do we let them go? So we have the B1 visa patients, as we call it, the B1 status. But because he was on meds when he crossed the border, Everything was beautiful, but they didn't give him enough meds to last for the entire length of treatment. They only gave him enough to get established in the U.S., and he was too scared to come uh, to seek uh, care. So bad for everybody who got it. I, I mean, you feel bad, like, you feel bad for him, too. I mean, I can see why he would do that. That not there isn't an excuse for it, but you know he waited years to come here for a you know for his engineering degree, and he thought this was going to be compromised because of his infection. Because they probably wouldn't let it on the board. They wouldn't have let it on. Yeah, they would not, and that's why he lied. That's why he lied about it. But after getting in, he could have probably gotten killed. Sorry, maybe this, if the quantifying gold maybe is a stupid question, but does it? Don't become negative after you. No, it doesn't. There is no stupid questions. Thank you, because this is what I want this lecture to be questions. I don't want to talk about slides, please. So the quantifier was positive, but you know what? 90% of people coming from high prevalence countries have positive quantiferons. Right. We don't treat them all if they have no symptoms and their chest x ray is negative. Because remember, your highest risk of, of reactivation is the first two years post-conversion, 10%. After the first two years, the risk is 5 to 10% lifetime. So we don't offer treatment past the first two years because the risk of INH toxicity, 0.4% versus the risk of activation is kind of a seesaw. You know, some patients really want it, we give it to them, but the guidelines say you don't really need to because the risk is so low. If those patients were going for BMT, transplant, getting biologics, right? Because that's the consults we get in a hospital. Positive PPD, positive quintoferon, about to give biologics. What do we do? Treat now, yesterday, right? These patients obviously need to be <laughs> treated. You, you, you're laughing because you know they come up. <laughs> As a midnight emergency, right? Like, yeah, give me right. 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> Job security for us, you know? Let's let's make it an urgency. Indication for treatment is Absolutely. So I'm going to get to that. You're stealing Dr. Morano's thunder. <laughs> so the the so when these patients come in, will they really if their chest X-ray is clear and they have no symptoms, I am not going to treat every positive quantiferon from abroad if they have no risk factors for progression. And unless they are a contact, and I know they could have been exposed recently, but most of these patients coming from high prevalence countries, 
they have tuberculosis, you know, their whole lifetime. So at the point we caught this guy with positive quantifier on nothing else, he was really not a candidate for treatment at that point. He didn't have anything on a chest x-ray at that point. He was not symptomatic, just positive quantifier on. The, the 50 shades of gray come in when they have healed TB and granulomas on a chest x-ray and positive quantifier and they are not symptomatic. And then it's like splitting hairs. Do we treat? Do we not? Are those granulomas dead? Is there a live AFB bacilli in them? What do we do? This is like what half of our case management URI experience. What do we do with those patients who have abnormal chest X-ray, looks like healed TB? What is the risk of activation? And it's really like a 50-50. Even Dr. Ashkin couldn't give us a straight answer. He said, let me look at the X-ray. I'm like, I'm not going to send you every X-ray of every patient I see because it's such a subjective judgment call. Does that make sense? And by the way, while we're talking about this BCG vaccine, what's the deal with BCG vaccine? Can it give you positive quantiferon or positive PPD? How long after your BCG vaccine? Six years. That's it. So if you got a BCG as a child, which most of us foreign born, right, me included, we got it as a child. Our positive PPD would only be until six, maximum 10 years. So if you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and you have a positive PPD, it's not from your BCG vaccine. So we never, ever, ever sweep it up under the BCG vaccine. Quantiferon came with a help to us, especially to convince our colleagues right, who are physicians and need to be tested on a yearly basis that they're positive, PPD and now positive quantiferon is not coming from their BCG vaccine because quantiferon does not pick up Mycobacterium bovis, which is in BCG vaccine, right? So yeah. the PPD will pick it up, technically speaking. So they have an argument that even if you tell them it's long time ago and it shouldn't be reactive, the quantiferon definitely is not going to be positive from a BCG vaccine. The reason the quantiferon is not a 100% test either as accurate as it is, it's because it picks up mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. What's in mycobacterium tuberculosis complex? Mycobacterium africanum, mycobacterium kenzaisi. So it could be positive with other mycobacteria. So it's, again, not a 100% test. It's just a, a screening test when input in context. It means something. But that's why we should not be testing everybody all the time because we're going to have post-positive results we are not going to do know what to do with. Does that make sense? How infectious is tuberculosis? Because we talked about the eight hours of acquisition. About only 30% of the time, pre-zero. So it's not very infectious. If it was any more infectious, we probably all had it by now, right? But it's only 30, three, zero, 30%. And half the people, I think Dr. Ashkin was telling that on our last case management, even with active tuberculosis are not infectious at all, right? So it's really not everybody who has TB necessarily spreads it to others. We just don't know who those people are because we don't have the technology. So TB, this is my recruitment tool. That's why why you all are here in Florida. We are number one in HIV, number one in syphilis, number one in tuberculosis, you name it. Uh, uh, so here you are, one of the four states 
leading in the number of tuberculosis. And that's been uh, the reason I'm showing this because look at this. In the past, this is 1998, 2021, we're still leading, right? Not as much as Texas or California or New York, but we are still up there. Yes. Sorry, this is kind of kind of a technical question. So yes. If you have a quadrupedal positive yes. a stem cell transplant, what's the expected response afterwards? Like Excellent question, right? This is what we face all the time. So for immunocompromise, and this is another lecture on its own, in HIV positive patients, in patients immunocompromised, I actually prefer PSPAT more than quantiperon because it's more accurate because you're comparing apples to apples and you have a higher possibility of uh, getting a true result. In HIV positive patients, we actually wait until the CD4 count goes above 200 and repeat either the PPD, usually quantiferon, and that's the true reading because it's really, and Dr. Henley, I will let you <laughs> comment on that. Too. have to have active production of interferon to, mm -hmm. to, to pick it up. Once they've had the transplant or once they've had, or the conditioning essentially, the test is worthless. Um, I mean, you, you can get, if it's positive, that may be helpful in the right clinical scenario, but a negative test or an indeterminate test. You know, doesn't help you at all. Doesn't help you once you've gotten conditioning for at least six to 12 months until you have some sort of broad um, immune reconstitution. That's why it's really important to get those people before they even yeah. get to their conditioning regimen to be able to have utility test. And the T-spot, yeah, the T-spot's great because it's it's yes, no, it's not quite ball where you're. It's not splitting hairs, right? Compared to a you know, control. Um, but a T spot no after transplant is a high risk of false negative because you mm -hmm. might just not be making interferons. And, you know, so you have to get them before. Yeah, only, only because I had a patient that was positive and wasn't treated, and then after transplant, but they didn't do a T spot. They didn't fall into so do you know how I think of these results? Once you get a positive, it's like a pregnancy test. You cannot ignore it. Like you've got to dig deeper. You're not going to get the positive pregnancy. Say, say hey, it's probably false positive, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to come back and hunt you. <laughs> but you will never forget it, you know, because you are always on the line. The primary team is trying to talk you into it. You know, no, you know, we have five negatives afterwards, right? But the case you're talking about, that's a positive. I mean, they were yeah. Positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. You see, even if it's false positive, it's, you know, we live in a very litigious society here, right? So once you have a one positive test, even if it doesn't make any sense, that's why we are always so careful. Like, please do not order things you don't know what to do with. Yeah. Only order things to confirm what you're thinking. No fishing expeditions, right? Because you order stuff, it's going to come back positive and you're going to be stuck with it. Even if it doesn't make any sense, you know it should be negative. You stuck with it because it's always going to be in a patient record. So even if this patient years from now comes back with big full-blown TB, it's going to be traced to your false positive test from years ago. So if you do not have a reason, please don't test them for TB. You will even see me, you know, hesitant. You know, you would think I see TB everywhere. I'm the one hesitant to order TB workups because of what am I going to do with the results? Yes. Question. Um, like in our HIV clinic, like our patients who are like relatively well controlled on H on mm -hmm. ART and they get a positive pressure on, they send them to TB clinic and they get treated for latent TB. Yes. Then like they're gonna be positive forever, right? Yes. Please. So just in the, in the HIV world, we do see quantifurans go to negative actually. Um, 
So do you keep checking it yearly? I do. Oh. I do. I do. We have a, our vets are very high risk and they have um, interactions with incarcerated individuals. Um, so, yes, we, we check them every year and in the health department space. We do, too. And so if they're positive, like you don't do anything yeah. unless they have access. I'll look like this one. She's the expert. But essentially, two things we've noticed. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to that. Maybe I should give it to that. Okay. And I'll answer okay. everything you want to know. I'm going to stay away from the HIV. But the only thing I'm going to say, as of yesterday, I trained the uh, downtown health department staff and we are actually shifting treatment of LTBI to downtown. So you are not going to be sending the patients to us. You're going to be treating them with me holding your hand. <laughs> Every step of the way, we're still going to get the difficult cases, but, you know, the INHers, the easy ones. And the whole idea is to give you a comfort level in treating them. And also, what are the chances of the patient making to my clinic across town? Right. I mean, the fact they are making it to your clinic is already a big deal. Why not do two for one? You are all competent. And instead of us calling you from TB clinic, what is your ART and how we can adjust it? It's so much easier phone call from specialty to TB clinic about it. One drug INH. Right. So I am as of yesterday, we started the process of shifting the LTBI treatment for HIV patients downtown and providing you with the medications. Uh, for 90 day supply, so they don't have to go through ADAP, but they are going to come from the TB clinic through the central uh, pharmacy. So you're going to be able to give 90 day supply. And, you know, we'll have all the in service, you're going to have all the graduation cards for patients, all the information. And I think it's going to make you feel more confident treating them because you kind of send them out and you don't really know what we deal with, what kind of side effects, what kind of interactions. And this is going to be expected. No matter where you go, you're not going to be sending as an infectious disease doctor patients to the health department for LTBI. It just does not, you know, this is being treated in a community by IDDAC. So I want you to be comfortable managing the side effects and the drug drug interactions. I guess this is kind of maybe a question for Dr. Hanley since he's. Thank you for being here. <laughs> for, for, for BMT people. So, I mean, as Dr. Kasanya said, pointed out, the quantifuron testing can. Um, become positive for other types of microbacteria. So if you have an instance, say, where you have a patient who is in, who is, who's going under preemptive testing in anticipation of conditioning an eventual transplant, um, they test positive. Uh, is there, is it possible to get them to spit to differentiate the species, to, the species to see if you need to treat beforehand? Or they automatically, you just say, yeah, to hell with it, and you just put them through the gauntlet so, of, yeah, uh, of, of a plant. Uh, microbacteria are environmental organisms. A lot of them are just colonizers of yeah. airways, oral cavities. So just spitting into a cup in a, in a right. patient who doesn't have anything right. clinically to tie to it is right. very dangerous. And it's not, a, and that's why the, you know, the guidelines to diagnose non-tuberculosis microbacteria, you have to have multiple cultures. Right. Uh, or you have to have, you know, deep cultures and so separate some, specimens, right? Yeah, some sort of rating. If they're quants positive, the first thing I'm going to do is get some sort of chest imaging. You have to rule out active disease. Like, always, always, always be before starting LTBI on any patients. Yeah. And then if let's say their chest X-ray or their chest imaging is negative. Right. Then the question is, how urgent is this transplant? If yeah. I have a, you know, flip three positive AML who is relapse and if they don't get a transplant, they're high risk of mortality the next year. I'm going to proceed with transplant and just do what I can to treat them for latent TBI at some point, even after a transplant, um, depending on kind of drug interactions with everything else going on. If it's something where it's myelodysplastic syndrome and 
they're saying, yeah, it's not super high risk. We're not even really talking about transplant now. Then you're just going to go ahead and probably treat latent uh, If the chest imaging is abnormal, mm. depending on their degree of immunosuppression of what we're actually going to do, then you might pursue something like a bronchoscopy or something to get you cultures. Gotcha. Um, you know, if you, what you're talking about, if they have an abnormal chest area, maybe I'm getting three AFB sputums mm. um, to see if I can isolate something if I'm not pursuing a bronch or something like that. But you you got to be really careful for the clinical context because those are just environmental organisms. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. That's that's where my confusion yeah. was. Was at what point do you say you can't have your transplant? We have to treat first. So yeah, there's it's all about the acuity of the patient. Gotcha. Um, and the urgency because yeah. you see the BMT world, we see it on the regular world with biologics. You know, they have a flare of uh, Crohn's. You see uh, lupus, right? And uh, aromatology wants you know steroids yesterday, right? So. We really go week by week how much TB therapy I can squeeze in. In the case where I have to, the, the, the treatment, whatever is coming, has to be as soon as possible. I go, uh, treat, I treat LTBI with RIPE because probably that's the most concentrated, fastest treatment of latent TB is with RIPE, with TB therapy, because you can do two months of RIPE and you're done. That's the fastest treatment. The second fastest treatment is the one with the combination pill, right? Once a week for three months, but it's again three months. So if the chest X-ray is abnormal and you have any inkling of active disease, remember the cultures are going to take eight weeks. You don't have eight weeks. So yes, you're going to wait for the cultures to come back, but meanwhile you're going to act. And if you have any inkling of active disease, you will never, ever, ever use monotherapy. You have to go to four drugs. So even doubt, overdo it. I hate to say the obvious, but obviously but I agree, chest imaging, absolutely. X, I do CTs for HIV positive patients, so I'm really concerned. Um, I think x-rays are, are okay if that's all we have. If they have good immune system. Right, exactly, <laughs> we're gonna get to that. But, uh, but CT, I think if you're really worried. But the, I think everyone with a positive clinical obviously needs those three sputums and needs imaging exactly to determine if it's active or latent. I've never seen, you know, a false case of MCATSASI, <laughs> right? treatment for Kenzaisa is the same as for TB minus the PZA. So if you treat them mostly for TB, right, you right. already treated the Kenzaisa. The bad news is treatment for Kenzaisa is 18 months. That for TB is six. So if you had a choice, TB is the better part to have. The other thing I would say too, especially for transplant, um, it, in any situation too, if you are looking at treating latent TB, so let's say they're quants positive, their imaging is negative, we're going to transplant. Because it is such a high risk of getting resistant to monotherapy, uh, what mm -hmm. you don't want to do is be in a situation where you're going to start someone on isoniazid for a week before they go to their transplant, and then the first time their LFTs bump, mm. they stop, stop it. Stop it. And yes. So is it very important to have a good multidisciplinary approach where you say, okay, this is the plan. We're going to tolerate this degree of, you know, LFT three times, five times after one, whatever, depending on the symptoms and everything else going on. Because you absolutely do not want to do like a week or stop time. and go stop and go stop and go it's better not to treat than to treat intermittently just like with yeah. hiv because of multi-drug resistance and, and i'll do that i'll wait 
let's say, let them go through their transplant. We'll see them a month after that. And then, you know, they're off a lot of their uh, interacting medications. And then we'll start treatment for latent PP, just mm -hmm. to ensure they stay on it the entire board. Mm -hmm. Board question. LTBI, do you treat during pregnancy? Good job. You wait until mom delivers. You start three months. That's what made me think of it. You wait about three months post-delivery, safe with breastfeeding. You start on LTBI. How can you find out if the baby is infected? Pregnant woman has TB. And now active. We're talking active TB. How do you find out if the baby has TB? Board question again. Just the blood from the cord of the baby. Close, but tuberculosis doesn't float in the bloodstream. It doesn't even float to, in the pleural fluid, right? You have to have a pleural biopsy. Even the BALs have low yield. So what do you do? How do you test the baby? You test the placenta. Several times, we take like 10 different samples. You chop up the placenta. You send it to path for granulomas. You do like 10 different PCRs on different parts. If the placenta is clean, the baby is okay. The board question, because, yeah, you're not going to induce sputum in a newborn or do a gastric laval. <laughs> but they will give you those choices on a board, and if you don't know it, you'll be tempted. Like, you've got to rule out active TB. So it's an important point. You will never forget it. Last uh, little tidbit. So how many AFB bacilli do you need on an AFB smear for it to be positive? 10,000. 10, so AFB smear negative means you have 9,999 bacilli, okay? It means nothing. If you have a high index of suspicion, majority of people will not have. You have to have such a high bacillary burden for the smears to be negative. Even if you do them three times, it's still, you have to have so many AFB bacilli to, for this smear, for the test to be positive. So my 60% of my cases have smear negative culture positive. Right? They grow in eight weeks, but the smears are negative if they are not very infectious. And the PCR didn't get a PCR. And PCR, this is another thing. PCR, we have been told, is a 100% test. Yeah. Yes, if you pick the part of a sputum which has tuberculosis. <laughs> if you pick part of a sputum that doesn't have TB, you're going to amplify nothing. Right? So post-positive, you hit a jackpot. Post-negative, doesn't mean anything. So please do not say PCR negative. Uh, smears negative, patient doesn't have tuberculosis. You can say that infectiousness is low, they don't need isolation, but that does not rule out tuberculosis. We just don't have better technology at this point. I actually argue you cannot rule out tuberculosis. There's no test that- yeah, Thank you, I'm trying. I'm just trying to give you some hope and Dr. Henley is taking it away. You're never sure, forget it. Like everything you learn, just forget it now. All bets are off. Point of this slide, tuberculosis is a disease of healthy people in the prime of their age. It's not a disease of the elderly or the children or the weak or the immunocompromised. It's a very fair disease, affects workforce. Imagine the days lost from work, the uh, environmental infectivity of the contact investigations. I mean, it's a big, big deal. MDR-TB, how do you get MDR? We already talked about it inadequate drug levels, right? Which could be caused by what? Non-compliance, non intermittent drugs, drug 
drug to drug interactions. That's why for patients which you uh, with Coumadin, drug to other drug to drug interactions, you're going to get drug levels. Patients drinking alcohol, right? It's competing for P415 liver. You're going to have problems with adequate TB levels. HIV patients, right, with a GI MAC, a GI a diabetic patients with uh, gastroparesis, anything which compromises your gut could possibly give you inadequate drug levels and problems with MDRTB. So it doesn't have anything to do with immunosuppression. Don't get tricked on the boards or being immunocompromised. Being immunocompromised does not make you high risk for MDRTB. It's things like and it could be indirectly because of, of infection with MAC or, you know, GI, candidiasis, nutrition that could affect it, but not directly. Remember, patients coming for a, from abroad who have their graduation cards for being treated for tuberculosis are also at high risk of MDRTB because 20% of drugs worldwide are counterfeited. So even if they completed the entire therapy, 20%. So that's why we're so much. That is the better of good news today. <laughs> but you know, like you're treating somebody for active TB, they are not responding to treatment, they have been treated previously, a light should go on, like this is a possible MDR, right? Something could have gone wrong with the previous treatment. So as you can see here, 71% of our cases come from abroad, about 30% are US born. So this is the, the latest CDC uh, statistics. It's still pulmonary TB, uh, but don't forget in HIV patients, 60% of TB is extra pulmonary. So unless they have huge lymph nodes, many of those cases are very hard to diagnose if it's nothing in the lungs. So please, if patients have unexplained symptoms, think of TB. My favorite patient is always the AIDS patients with CD4 count of two, where two cells are holding hands, floating around, <laughs> and the patient is completely asymptomatic. The only thing they have is weight loss, which could be attributed to AIDS wasting syndrome. So if you have two cells holding hands, what is going to be your quantiferon? Negative. What is going to be your PPD? Negative. What is going to be your chest X-ray? Negative, because you need an immune system to make an infiltrate. Are you going to have any symptoms? Absolutely not. You're not going to have a fever. You're going to be tired. You're going to have fatigue. You're going to feel like a regular American worker, <laughs> right? Or a post-call fellow. Maybe a little bit of headache, maybe a little bit irritable, maybe a little bit of fatigue, right? But because tuberculosis is so gradual, you don't recognize those symptoms. You learn to live with them and that's your normal. So even if you ask patients, do you have this? Do you have this? They are going to say no. Only when you treat them and they start feeling better, then they realize they have low energy level. They have this, they have this, but they have learned to live with it. So they will say no to all these symptoms. So the eighth patient that I have to treat for tuberculosis, I have zero evidence. And I'm telling them, Please take these 20 pills because they are weight-based. They're going to make you feel very sick. <laughs> but you're going to feel better in two months <laughs> or more. What sane person <laughs> would agree to that? But this is what we are faced with. 
in the TB world because you cannot, and Dr. Morano is going to talk about it, we cannot start TB and HIV therapy at the same time. You have to start TB first. So really you have no objective evidence whatsoever. All you have is weight loss and a high index of suspicion because of their history, because of whatever other factors you can think of, but nothing on, no objective data of tuberculosis when you are convincing those patients to take TB meds. And this is where I think the negotiation skills and the difficulty of treating TB comes in because you have nothing objective to show the patient. They are still mm -hmm. have TB and they are dying of tuberculosis. Does that make sense? Any questions? And these cases, how do we call them for your boards? Provider cases. Why? Because I, as the provider, am saying you have TB. <laughs> There's nothing else about it. So these are provided cases. Clinical cases are when you have a positive quantiferon and abnormal chest X-ray. Clinical, and you have symptoms. So you have symptoms, you have chest X-ray, you have quantiferon, but you don't have proof of tuberculosis, your smears and your cultures are negative. These are clinical cases. TB cases are the jackpot, you have positive cultures, gold standard of diagnosing TB. So extrapulmonary, difficult. You have to find the right organ to biopsy to have a proof. Majority of these cases we treat as clinical cases because we're not going to randomly biopsy patients, right? We talked about it, clinical features. So um, when you are exposed to tuberculosis, you inhaled tuberculosis, and for about six to eight weeks, I was shocked when I learned this first, you have disseminated TB. You have no symptoms. Six to eight weeks later, based on your immune system, the tuberculosis is going to either go to sleep and become latent, or you go. it's going to pick an organ in your body to live in. Majority of cases, it's the lungs, but it could be anything. I'm treating right now tuberculosis of the eye, tuberculosis of the ovary, tuberculosis of the knee, tuberculosis of you pick the organ with nothing in the lungs. So it's really thyroid. We had a case of tuberculosis of a thyroid and nothing in the lungs, right? So it really picks an organ to live in or it becomes latent. So at that point, if you have a good immune system, it becomes latent, your PPD quantiferon turns positive and you are high risk for the first two years. Does that make sense? If you have a poor immune system, it becomes active to whatever organ in your body mostly the lungs if you are HIV negative and you become symptomatic, hopefully enough to seek medical care. Interestingly enough, 50% of patients will get better with tuberculosis on their own. Their immune system would fight the TB and they get better without treatment. So this is the patients where you get this chest X-ray and they have these granulomas and you ask them, have you ever had tuberculosis? They said, no. They had TB, they got better, and the granulomas are basically shrunken cavities, which we would not do anything about them unless they go for BMT or transplant. You're going to have to treat them because if there is one live AFB bacilli in the granuloma, guess what? It's going to come back to life with immunosuppression. So granulomas need to be treated with active TB therapy if facing major immunosuppression. Does that make sense? Does that come up all the time? What do we do with granulomas? I don't know about you, but this is how I felt post-call, <laughs> right? I mean, these symptoms are so non-specific. There is no hallmark of TB. By the time you have hemoptysis, you have one foot in a grave, okay? You have angioinvasive disease, you are like end-stage TB. 
90% of patients never have hemoptysis and you have these non-specific symptoms. Unlike flu, you could be sitting at a red light on a Friday at 2 p.m. You look at your watch and you say, or your phone and say, shoot, I got flu, right? You get this instant body aches, pain, retroorbital pain. You just know you got it, right? Not with TB. That's why it's evolutionary advantage of killing slowly. <laughs> if you will. We talked about the smears, how many of them you need to be positive. So don't be fooled by negative smears. Again, uh, so how do we know, how many A bacilli do you need to get infected with TB? You need 10,000 for A B smears to be positive. How many from those 10,000 do you need to be sick with? Hundred. Why is it a hundred? So it's a study we cannot repeat. In a good old days, <laughs> beginning of 20th century, they, did you know that the expression guinea pig comes from studies with tuberculosis? They noticed that if an AV bacilli hits the skin of a guinea pig, it forms a reaction. So no IRB would approve this study nowadays. They put a sick patient in one room, they put a healthy patient in another room, they connected the rooms by a vent, they stuck a guinea pig in the vent, and they waited. How long is it going to take for the healthy patient to get infected? Yes. Once the healthy patient got infected, they pulled the guinea pig out of a vent, they counted the reactions on their skin, and it was about 100. <laughs> okay, I I cannot recreate a study for you, but that's the best we have. Doesn't help anyone. Doesn't help anyone. That's So the question, we invite a bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> so the question comes up, if I only need 100 bacilli to get sick, how can we get away with this continuing isolation with 9,999 bacilli? It's because it's public health, it's hospital policy. Uh, with free negative AFB spheres, the risk is so low. You still have tuberculosis as a patient, but the risk of transmission is so low that it warrants this continuing isolation. But many times you will see me wearing an N95 to patients' rooms, which isolation is discontinued <laughs> policy because the index of suspicion is so high and the patient has such a juicy tuberculosis. <laughs> I literally cannot get away with a regular mask. So call me paranoid. I remember visiting India and I went to the TB hospital uh, and it was beautiful. It had open windows, sunlight, they, you know, many patients in a row, but, you know, ventilation, medications. I, I mean, I was like impressed. Nobody's wearing a mask. I'm wearing my mask because I'm paranoid. I'm from America. Right. And as I'm walking and, you know, meeting the patients, talking to the staff uh, and I said, wow, you, you take a really good care of your TB patients. You know, we treat them outpatient and they look at me and they said, these are our MDR cases. <laughs> at that point, I put my second N95 mask and quietly walked out. <laughs> so they don't even think of regular cases. Only the MDRs get admitted. Yeah, so I was walking through a ward of about 150 patients with MDR, you know, 
not having a good seal, being you know, very cavalier because you know it's uh, sunlight and and fresh air. So it's great if you have cavities, but again, many patients don't have it. In HIV positive patients, immunocompromised patients, please get CTs. Uh, the thin walled cavities will not show up on a chest X-ray, and it also is so subjective. A urology, a radiologists will not pick up if they are not trained in reading TB uh, cases uh, X-rays, so they don't pick it up. Chest X-ray very important. So before you put anybody on the LTBI, you have to collect the sputums. You've got to get imaging studies. Always rule out active TB before initiating LTBI treatment. You want it at baseline and at the end of treatment to have a new baseline because many of patients come back if a recurrence or reinfection. So if you have tuberculosis, you do not get immunity. I have patients who had tuberculosis three, four, five times because they have the same risk factors. They go to the same contact. Sometimes we have difficulty finding the index case. So just like with STDs, you've got to treat everybody or they are going to be coming back and becoming in, uh, reinfected. PPD, you guys know everything about it. Remember intuition, not the redness that you measure. You have to come back in 48 hours. It's very user dependent. So make sure that whoever reads them because you're splitting hairs with the uh, millimeters, they still test you on those. So make sure you know this. We as healthcare workers come in the 10 millimeter category. The question on a board with IV drug users, which category IV drug users come in? What do you think? 10, think of them as street pharmacists. Okay, street pharmacists, right? Medical risk factors, you'll never forget it. 10 millimeters, because that's the, the board question which came. Yes, street pharmacists, right? You will never forget. It's the 10 millimeters for street pharmacists. Okay, you'll never forget it. We already talked about interferon gamma, just like Dr. Handling mentioned, you need to have enough interferon to be measured. Active TB disease, we talked about how LTBI progresses to TB, the highest risk, remember, two years post-conversion, otherwise 5 to 10% lifetime, HIV person 10% every year. So if you live 10 years with HIV, which most of our patients do, you have a 100% chance of your, HIV, of your TB becoming active. Therefore, regardless of the time on conversion, every HIV patient has to be treated for LTBI. And this is just to remember for your boards what's going to make you progress more likely from latent to active TB. So definitely substance abuse, corticosteroids, don't forget silicosis and the association with TB, diabetes, being on dialysis, intestinal conditions, and being 10% below ideal body weight is independent risk factor progression of TB from latent to active. I thought that was interesting. So being underweight, it's like you give a head start to the consumption, <laughs> if you will. So being underweight alone will make your TB wake up and uh, progress. LTBI treatment, Dr. Uh, Morano is going to talk about HIV, but for HIV negative patients, uh, the guidelines change in 2020. Finally, shorter is better because the old guidelines had these, you know, nine months of INA, number one treatment. So now we go for shorter. If we can get away with rifampin, rifabutin, any of the rifamycins, the combination pills. My favorite is the INH rifapentin weekly uh, for three months because it's the shortest. 
INH still with a comment six months and again we'll talk about HIV alone. When are you going to get drug levels? Common sense. Whenever you suspect malabsorption, right? And remember, in the state of Florida, and Dr. Uh, Moran is going to talk about treatment, so we are not repetitive. We have directly observed therapy. So it's either via video tea or we physically watch patients swallow pills, and Yuri got the pleasure of going on a run with our DISs, and they do do it, right? Tell me. Watch the guy take the pills. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, it takes forever. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, you literally go to somebody's house and you watch them smile. Done. <laughs> <laughs> My boy, are you staring at me? Very, very interesting interaction. Very interesting. I wish he took a video of it. Very interesting. He couldn't because each of you has to do it. Come on. Right. Uh, <laughs> you don't save me the time. <laughs> Don't see dogs, dogs, so. okay, you have to have a hands-on experience. Okay. This is not a virtual fellowship, right, Dr. Katzman? <laughs> where is the strain coming from? Because if I have the same strain of TB in a high school teacher in North Tampa and a homeless man in South Tampa, I need to find where they came in contact, right? Because I'm missing an index case or where they connected. So this is very important for contact investigation and looking for you know all the contacts when things don't make sense. Because if you have the same strain in people who should not technically come in contact with each other, you know you have a problem and a bigger a thing to deal with. So how many do you send for genotyping? All of them. All of them. Every single day. That's why I, I, you know, I wish we did it with other diseases, but with TB, we have the ability to do the oligotyping with every single one of them, and we can see the trends and the clusters. And they, this is a national and international database, so we can really connect cases, even if your patient leaves the country. You connect with this international network, and they pick them up whatever country they go to and pick up where we left off. It's amazing. We just give enough pills for travel and maybe an extra week to settle in and the local health department from Mexico, India, whatever they go in Europe, picks them up and looks for them. It's, it's really amazing, truly global treatment and global disease. But the technology is there and it's all free. But why I, I don't have any limitations and that's why I think I like to do it because you feel, think of this, this is the only disease you can look the patient in the eye and say, I'll cure you. Because the treatment is non-negotiable. Right? Nothing else you're going to do it. Because with every other illness, you are at the patient's mercy to take the treatment. Even IV, they can refuse, right? Chemo, they can refuse. You cannot refuse TB therapy. To the point I have put G-tubes for patients who didn't want to swallow pills. And they got cured. So, you know, as an ego boost for a physician, I flag for TB. 